Blind Man Brewing, makers of craft beer in central Alberta, is proud to present this episode of Harmonious Gentlemen. Keep an eye out for their new taproom. of podcast episodes were historic American highways that span nearly 4,000 kilometers from Los Angeles to Chicago and were known as the primary routes for Americans who traveled west. You'd know this has to be episode 66 of The Harmonious Gentleman. I'm Chris. I'm Tyler. And I'm Graham. We're on Zoom, so we just said it at the exact same time, but I'm Tyler. Yeah, I can fix that, man. It's okay. I'm Graham. Uh, Chris, is that is that in honor of a, an American guest? This is in honor of um, an American guest, Rob. At this, we're talking, of course, of Route 66, which I've never been on. But after that intro, I feel like I'm entitled to go do it. Get your kicks on Route 66, <laughs> as the song says. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, guys, it's great to be here. Yeah. Um, hey, just before we jump too far in, you guys, I, I think we have a pretty important announcement for our listeners here in central Alberta. Um, Tyler, why don't you tell them what that is? Well... We have a burger of the month at Cilantro and Chive. You may notice it there. If you, when you go there, um, the Lacombe lo- location, you'll notice a burger of the month. Um, yeah, that we helped design, which was amazing. And we're so grateful to Cilantro and Chive for um, inviting us to do that. Chris, maybe you can tell us a little more about what that's all about, other than just being a delicious burger. Yeah, it is a delicious burger. And I think when you order it and read the uh, description, you'll know and be able to see what it, how it connects to uh, our podcast, specifically being harmonious. Um, but what we're really excited about that is that it's also a fundraiser for the Step Up program of Red Your Public Schools. And $2 from the sale of every burger goes towards the Step Up Fund, which is uh, about equity for students in Red Your Public Schools. And it also, uh, yeah, so it's just money that, students who might not be able to afford it could use towards breakfast and lunch programs, bus passes, school equipment, that kind of stuff. So school supplies, I guess, not equipment. You know what I mean? So we would encourage you to get out there and order a harmonious gentle burger. How many, how much of the um, profits go to us? We didn't work that out in the contract, but it's (laughs) between zero and negative $2 per burger. No, that's not what it's about. Yeah, that was, yeah. No, no. Okay, can I ask? I'm sorry, guys. Can I ask? The my mind is spinning. Like, hmm, a harmonious burger. Like, it (laughs) it could be three cheeses that are just really harmonious and lovely together, or maybe there's three types of meat coming together, or some other like harmonious combination. Can you can you tempt my taste buds a little more? Well, our one of the features that we really like is that it has rye bread on the top. And then French bread on the bottom. So we got two very different breads on either end that brings harmony to the ingredients in the middle. Oh, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. And where, where is it that I can score such a succulent uh, burger? <laughs> uh, it might be a little bit far away from where you are, but it's Lacombe, Alberta. Lacombe, Alberta. And the name of the restaurant was? Cilantro and Chive. And they, of course, are one of our main sponsors for the podcast and have been for a while. So... Yeah, it's a really cool thing. They reached out and we, I think we secretly hoped this would happen one day, <laughs> but never dreamed. Uh, yeah, it's too good to be true. Yeah, so we're excited. And actually, this this episode comes out, I think, right at the beginning of April. So it's out as of right now. So head up to Lacombe and, and uh, yeah, not the Red Deer location. So don't be confused by that. Yeah. 
if I leave right now, I could get yeah. there <laughs> by totally April could. 1st. We would take you out for a burger run. <laughs> I would yeah. love that. Well, it's a date. Okay. <laughs> Should we get into right, uh, some recommendations? Uh, I thought you'd never ask. I feel like we already did at one huge recommendation, but... segment is proudly supported by cilantro and chive serving up fresh simple eats serving up fresh simple recommendations from the harmonious gentleman welcome back to my favorite segment of the podcast recommendations i'm going to start today gentlemen i read a book on the weekend yes i finished the whole thing Hmm. don't make your snarky comments only took me a couple of days and ignoring my kids for a while but it's Hmm. fantastic um it's a story i heard years ago just sort of i think i read online about a mystery uh, in 1959 where some, um, some students uh, took a hike and uh, mysteriously died. Um, and it's called Dead Mountain. Hmm. And uh, it's actually Russian students at a university. And I won't go into the whole story, but basically they are hiking on a crazy hard mountain to hike. They find all their bodies uh, far away from their tent that they would had set up and they left their tent for some unknown reason. And they were found all over the mountain, not wearing boots. And it's a crazy story. Kind of an, a really classic unsolved mystery. So um, I couldn't put it down. It's called Bigfoot? Well, that's one of the crazy theories. Oh. Um, of the, I mean, that's not what the author thinks. But it's called, yeah, it's called Dead Mountain. And <laughs> I just looked it up just to double check the author. And I didn't even know they had a season, a TV show based on it, actually. I just see that now. So, um, But anyway, yeah, check it out. Dead Mountain. It's great. Well, sounds good. Well, I, have, I actually have a book, too. Um, and I read it very recently. It's by our esteemed guest, Rob Volpe, and it's called Tell Me More About That, Solving the Empathy Crisis, One Conversation at a Time. And Graham is holding up for our video viewers, which is just us who are in Zoom. <laughs> um, I lent it to Graham before, uh, before we came on tonight, but um, yeah, it's great. It's about empathy, which is something that we at The Harmonious Gentleman are excited about. And like to talk about, but I'm recommending this book. It's it's full of great stories. Um, yeah, and I'm sure we'll get to hear a little bit from Rob, I'm hoping, in this episode, his excellent storytelling. And then also just really practical um, steps to working out our empathy muscles, which I think in society we need that too. So great stories and tips for empathy. And we'll be talking about it more later, I'm sure. Thank you. I, I- I, I love that you have the book. I love that you've read the book. Um, and we'll, yeah, let's, I can't, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. I totally stole his thunder by like, holding up the book that he lent to me today. So, <laughs> yeah. Chris it, has now moved into a cave, it appears, yeah. and is now going to give us his recommendation. Okay. So, I'd like to recommend a show on Crave or HBO, depending what country you're uh, getting your cable network through. It's called Our Flag Means Death. It's a pirate show and it's by the uh, Taika Waititi who you may have heard of he's directing all kinds of things right now for Disney and everybody else and um, I don't know the actor's name I should know it but the main character is Murray from Flight of the Concords and just that humor if you like Flight of the Concords or what we do in the shadows Um, so if you can imagine you know uh, New Zealand humor not about vampires or little bands but about pirates and it's just awesome it has a historical connection to a guy a pirate named steed who was a gentleman 
and a, a rich aristocrat of some kind who wanted to become a pirate and uh, his run in with Blackbeard. So check out our flag means death. Um, so we started to watch it the other night. If I can ask questions, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that we finished it completely, but we laughed at yeah. it. Does it, it, it? Does it? Is the first episode similar to to all of it in terms of tone and pacing and everything? Okay, so here's my confession: I haven't finished the series. I've only watched the first, I think, five episodes. But yeah, I would say it is. But there's a lot about. Um, the mental health, I would say, of the two lead characters. A surprising okay. amount about that. Okay. All right. It, I mean, it, I, <laughs> I loved the scene where they were going to board the other ship <laughs> in the yeah. first episode. Yeah. <laughs> and they go through that, and you're just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was uh, yeah it's that kind of slapstick humor. They're sewing their new flag around the table. That was my favorite part. Like they're sharing their crafts with <laughs> <Yes>. each other. <laughs> choose, choose your fabrics, choose your yeah. crafts. And the, 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 <laughs> the more seasoned pirates are like, who is this guy? Yeah. Yeah. It's that kind of comedy the whole way through. Okay. <laughs> so Rob, we're, we're happy that you're joining us for this segment. Would you like to recommend something to our listeners? Yeah. Um, well, speaking of, and I'm going to butcher his name, Taika Waititi, um, who's so funny. He was also, we watched free guy, um, on HBO max, I think this weekend. And he was in that. Um, and that was a surprisingly fun, clever, very Ryan Reynolds sense of humor, uh, movie, which was great. But the one that I was, and so when you mentioned, um, our flag, uh, that got me thinking of a free guy. But, uh, the other thing that we've started watching that we're enjoying is the Andy Warhol diaries on oh, yeah. Netflix. Um, two or three episodes in, there's only like five, but you know, really fascinating kind of behind the scenes. What, you know, and it, it's that other side of Warhol's private life. And he was a, a, a an intensely private individual, which is sort of ironic given his focus on fame and then the 15 minutes of, of mm-hmm. celebrity and the 15 minutes of fame. Um, but it's really good. And it's exploring um, his relationships and his gay relationships in particular, but um, it gives you a, a better sense of who he was as a person and kind of the things that he was uh, the demons that he was battling through all of that uh, era of the 60s, 70s, and, and 80s. Um, so it's really, it's well done. Rob, is it they, like reenacted or do they have footage of all that stuff? They've got a lot of footage of him and they actually used, it's based on a book which are, are of his diaries and they've actually done, um, through the magic of AI, they have recreated his voice uh, mm. to read his diary entries um, oh, wow. and with the approval of, of his foundation. And then there's interviews with other um, uh, artists, historians, friends that are providing context um, that knew him well and, and giving you that sense of mm. uh, what he was all about. I don't think they really recreate anything. Um, but they'll show you things from his archives. Like they pull out all of his wigs. I don't know if you realize that but <laughs> he wore wigs. Um, they pulled out all of his wigs and they were talking about um, the way he presented himself because he had um, uh, skin conditions or, or just his, the texture of his skin wasn't uh, um, 
uh, camera ready necessarily. And so he was always using uh, makeup and um, he just was never happy with himself um, and his own appearance. So, you know, and then how did that play out in the ways that he behaved towards other people and, and what he was expecting? So, yeah. Yeah, really good. Warhol Diaries on Netflix. Awesome. So two shows and two books. There you go for today. Um, awesome. Well, it's it's pretty cool to talk to Rob and also for listeners that have no idea who Rob is. So hopefully we can remedy that in a moment. It's my privilege to introduce this episode's guest. He's curious, passionate, and driven. He loves figuring out why we act the way we act, like what we like, and say the things we say. He's an astute observer of life, a master storyteller, author, and empathy activist, and he's our next guest. I'm extremely excited to welcome to the podcast, Rob Volpe. Welcome here, Rob. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks, Chris and Graham. Great to be here. Um, yeah, really appreciate you having me on and love to have the chance to chat more about empathy. Yeah. One, uh, one little piece I was going to add in there was that Shannon Maroney, actually, one of our recent guests, kind of connected us, which is really cool. How, how do you know her? Uh, Shannon and I just met a couple months ago. We have the same publisher, Page Two, out of Vancouver. Um, and I, I forget what the actual initial impetus was. If it was Jesse Finkelstein, the publisher who said, Oh, you two should get to know each other. Um, but Shannon and I, you know, it was one of those like love at first sight zoom calls. Um, I guess if that, that would be the way rom-coms are made these days over <laughs> zoom. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we just instantly hit it off and I've got her, I've been, I've been buying a lot of books lately. And so I have her, both her first book and then her, her current book uh, that's out, her latest. I'm um, looking forward to, to diving into those. That's really cool. Yeah, we had uh, one of those Zoom calls with her too, where we just, yeah. It was, <laughs> How can it was you like not a, love Shannon? Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. come on. But that's enough about Shannon. We love <laughs> Shannon. We've established that. We love Shannon, um, but we're here to talk about my book. Yeah, Tell me more about, about you. that. Solving yeah. the Empathy Crisis, one conversation at a time. Yeah, so so what, yeah, tell us a bit about your story. Like, um, what brought you to, because you're not, like, you haven't been an author for your whole, whole career or your whole life. Like, this is, is this your first book you've written or have you written others? Okay, so if we're really going to go way back in time, when I was in, like, third grade, maybe I participated in a young writers challenge or something. And I wrote this story called a mouse's eye view of life in the white house. And it was about <laughs> these like mice that lived in the white house and was behind the scenes based on like, absolutely my imagination. Cause I'd never been to the white house at that point. Um, but I've always had writing. It, it's been one of my um, uh, strengths from a communications perspective and as an art. And I love I love language. I love words. I love turning a phrase. Um, and so, yeah, I've always felt like I've had a book in me. Didn't know what that was going to be. I've dabbled in a little bit of fiction here and there. And and then I just love writing podcast and not podcast blog posts and, and things like that. Um, but what really got this book going, um, I guess if I take you back all the way in my origin story, the, 
first sort of spider bite Peter Parker turns to Spider-Man moment happened when I was a kid growing up in Indiana. It's a very small town. And we had moved into that small town and, uh, and I write about it in the book, but the kids, all of a sudden I was like the new kid. I had this Italian last name that nobody could pronounce. And we had these different, we were just other different customs and family traditions. And the kids decided that one of the kids in particular decided that um, he should start telling everybody that I was gay. And in fifth grade in 1980, like I, I knew I was different from the other kids, but I didn't why or how or what gay was i had to go home and ask my mom that's like a really awkward conversation especially back then when you know this is like before the aids crisis and all you knew about was like john wayne gacy serial killer and drag queens (laughs) and why is my son coming home and asking about being gay um so that all got out and and got around and made my life a living hell and empathy was the thing um that helped save me because I was able to, and, and unknowingly, I didn't like look it up in a dictionary or something and go, ooh, this is, this is what I need. But I started to use empathy to get along with my classmates, um, to try to understand like where they were coming from, who they were, what they were about, so that I could use that to kind of manage the rumors, to hopefully have some people on my side in case you know somebody decided they wanted to get in my face or start something there would be some people that go, oh, he's, he's, he's fine. Don't like leave him alone. So that if, you know, I took an interest in them, they would at least, because I was interested in them, not necessarily want harm to come to me. Not that, you know, they were coming to my defense, but they weren't um, adding on to it. They weren't, you know, piling on if you would. So that happened back in the eighties, got through that, left town, went to college, got into my career, finally landed about 15, 16 years ago in marketing research and qualitative research in particular, which is all about talking to people and listening, more importantly, to people and understanding how they think, feel, and behave, and then helping our clients understand who those people are, what makes them tick, what their needs are, so that our clients can create better products, services, um, advertising campaigns to to meet that that need so 12 years ago in 2010 a study came out of the university of michigan that found that they had done a a meta-analysis a study of studies of universities 76 universities from 1979 through 2009 and they found in 2001 there was a 40% decline in empathy skills compared to the start of the study in the, you know, in the 70s and the 80s and 90s. There was just a steady decline. And by 2001, it was 40% less in people's ability to see the point of view of their classmates. Hmm. And then it stayed declining. You know, and you tell that, I tell that number to some people and they'll be like, oh, well, 9-11, that's what caused that. And it's like, mm, no, actually, because if it was a, caused by an event, you know, whether you had a recession or, or a terrorist attack, you'd see it, it'd be a spike, it would start to come back up. But the last eight years of that study through 2009, it didn't move. And apparently, the authors uh, refreshed the study in 2016, and they saw no noticeable change from what I've heard. Um, but in 2010, that study came out, and I was standing in an airport, and CNN was playing airport CNN channel. And it was on the scroll, and the, the, the anchor even talked to it. 
And I was like, oh my God, like this is really bad. If there's a 40% decline in empathy, that basically means our empathy skills, let's just say it's half of what it used to be. That means that we're not able to get along with each other. We're not able to see each other's point of view. Like all those things that I knew empathy could do and was just had become so intrinsic to who I am as a person, that was gone for many people or, or greatly diminished. And if you were a college student in 2001, let's say you were 20. In 2010, you're about 30. So you are already in the workforce. You might even be managing people. You might be in a position of leadership. You might be um, a partner, married spouse, might be a parent. And so that lack of empathy, it's not like you're going to train somebody to be more empathetic than you were. It's its sort of the, the um, Xerox copy that just fades sort of over mm-hmm. time. That's bad. I was like, we got to do something about that. And I look around because, you know, I'm expecting, yeah, we're all galvanized. Let's go out in the streets and, and <laughs> bring on the empathy. And the guys are having a beer over at the, the bar in the airport and other people are racing to catch their flight. And it was this very Cassandra-like moment of like, oh, shit, I'm seeing the future. I see what's going on and nobody else is paying attention to it. <laughs> So over the subsequent years, I started Ignite360 about a year later, uh, which is my uh, research firm. And then we started to uh, really focus on empathy because we were noticing our clients were hungry for it, but they didn't also understand how to get it. Um, they thought it was something like running to the supermarket. I'm going to go get some you know, milk, eggs, and, and cheese. Um And it's like, no, there's actually a lot more to it. You've got to understand how to get to the supermarket first before you can go do those those other things. So we started to look at like, okay, well, what is it that gets in the way of our clients? What gets into our way? And what are the other studies showing, the other data that's out there? Um, Because empathy, especially over the last 10 to 15 years, there's more and more academics and scientists that are really looking at it from a a neurophysiological level to developmental psychologists. Um, There's a lot more thinking that's coming out around empathy. And you were also starting to hear pundits say like, oh, we've got to go get some more empathy. But, you know, I'd read articles in the paper and I'd get frustrated because they'd be like, well, you've got to go watch the TV shows that they watch. You've got to go eat the foods that they eat. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's great. But if I go to uh, cilantro and chives, mm-hmm. is that? Yeah. yeah. So if chives, I were to go yeah. to cilantro and chives, never been there before, and I'm not dismantling my judgment, I'm going to go in and I'm not going to have the, the right experience. I'm not going to get to a place of empathy. I'm not going to get to a place of understanding why this rye French bread burger is like the best thing ever because I haven't taken the steps to get to a place of empathy, to be open to it. And so we started noticing that we started looking at our own um, experiences and and mine in particular, because when I go into a lot of the research that we do, I get to go into people's homes. So I walk into their homes and, you know, I'm paying attention to everything that's on the walls, what they say, the way they behave, listening to the words um, that are coming out. And they're, 99% 99% of the time, they are not people that are like me for any number of reasons, because of gender, because of age, because of values, political leaning, uh, perspective on different social issues. 
And so I would need to go through those five steps myself. And as I write about in the book, and Tyler, you probably noticed a few of them. I wasn't very successful a lot of the time. I had some spectacular failures um, that I I share in the book. Um, But through that, we were able to recognize like, oh, wait, hey, there's five steps to get to empathy. Um, and here's you know what they are, and how do we then start to teach that to people and bring awareness to the steps so that people in that moment can actually try to be more empathetic. Well, when I hear steps, I think, oh, that's something I can do. Because when I hear to be more empathetic, it's it sounds like you said it sounds so great. Like I just got to be more empathetic, but put that into practice. What does that mean? And and yes, and and Graham, empathy is a. Um, skill uh that we have it's it's like one of our senses we are born being empathetic and the neuroscientists have proven that out but there's also a lot of uh, misunderstanding and misconceptions about empathy and what it is and how we get there people often misperceive it to be about emotion and that scares a lot of people i think stereotypically it scares men and puts them into a little more discomfort um, and, and we're not always, you know, and we haven't been in a place in society lately where empathy or emotion is something that, oh yeah, share, tell me how you're feeling. Um, and when you think about the sort of patriarchal sort of, uh, society that we've come up in over the last 70, 80 years, it's been very like, there's no room for emotion in the workplace where men aren't supposed to be nurturing, um, you know, it's a weakness to show emotion for women as well as, as for men. And so I fe- we found it was also important to demystify that, to break that down and say, well, actually, there's two different types of empathy. There's cognitive empathy, which is the perspective taking. And then there's emotional empathy, which is feeling what somebody else is feeling. And those are very different things, and they require different skills. And you can't not everyone can have emotional empathy with everybody, nor maybe should they, but you can hopefully see the point of view, like understand where somebody's coming from. Can I, can I ask a question just going back to like your origin story? I th- I'm thinking of picturing you as like an 11 year old, 12 year old kid. Was that in just intuition that you had that empathy is going to be important for me and a step maybe of protection, but also of like rallying around and with people how did you know that? Like you, you were just born with more empathy than others or. Yeah. I don't recall the moment where I realized I needed to make friends with people, but it was definitely a survival. Like how am I going to avoid having a horrible day getting, you know, possibly beaten up? I never was, but getting teased. How do I, how do I turn that off? What do I have to do? And I found, I, I probably observed um, that the kids that I was friendly with and that knew me a little bit and I knew them weren't the ones that were engaging with that. So, how, you know, then you, you start to go, hmm, okay, let yeah, me go and make friends yeah. with these other people. Yeah, that's um, pretty cool. When I, when I read How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I read relatively early, but it all just made sense. It was like, oh, yeah. yep, do that, do that, do that. In there. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then, you know, you also l- learn to modify behavior, unfortunately. And, you know, how do you, what's the 
you're kind of coding that you need in order to fit in. Um, so I was doing that probably, uh, to a degree. And then it was figuring out like, Hmm, okay, I need to be friends with that person. I, I, the, the one example of that, that always sticks out in my mind, there was, this is in high school, maybe freshman year of high school. There was a girl sitting behind me in a health, I don't know, health class, we'll call it. And I turned to her and we were talking about what we did last night. And I, I probably watched you know, whatever was on ABC sitcoms the night before. And she told me how she drank a fifth of grain alcohol, <laughs> like a fifth thing, like oh. a fifth of what? <laughs> like, cause I didn't understand what a fifth was as a measurement and grain alcohol. Like what's that even taste like having not really tasted alcohol at that point. And she proceeded to tell me and, and you know, how, who knows how much of that was legit, how much of it was made up, but I was listening to her and she was of the, um, click of the, I don't know, you'd call them the, the druggies, the hoods, the, you know, they were the Judd Nelson. She was in the Judd Nelson group in the breakfast club. <laughs> um, and so she, though, because I listened to her, her demeanor towards me changed. So if her boyfriend, who was much scarier, like wanted to, you know, push me around, she might tug on him and go, I'll leave him alone, you know? Um, and, and it wasn't that I was seeking out like, hmm, it's Tuesday, therefore I'm going to go talk to Amy um, and work my empathy magic. But I was, as, as opportunities came up or situations came up, it's just how I started moving through the world. You, you kind of mentioned what I think is like the, well, it's the first step that you mentioned in the book is dismantling judgment. And I think that's kind of what, when you even mention characters from, from film or something, like we, we attach a stereotype or we know the stereotype you're talking about. And we like, we're guilty of judging. Like, it's just like a sign that we do one, one quote in your, in your book, you talk, and we've mentioned it here too, is that we're born with the ability to be empathetic, but I, I feel like that we're also born being judgmental. Um, oh yeah. So then, um, you, I actually, I'm going to read something that, I, that stood out to me from your book and maybe it'll spark something new here, but I really like this. We have a toxic codependent relationship with judgment. It's something we need in our life to protect us, but it's not good for us because it sabotages us, our ability to form true connection. Um, I just think that, yeah. Kind of like it captures what you were just talking about, and um. yeah, it does. I I'm, um, I, f I find for myself, judgment is the thing that gets in the way. I think at one point in the book, I jokingly observed that it's the dominant gene in my family. We all come out brown eyed and judgy, um, <laughs> and 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 again, something like empathy that needs to be demystified. You know, there's two types of judgment. There's making a judgment, which is a decision. Do I go down that dark alley? Um, you need to do those things, and that that is correct. It's the being judgmental, the casting aspersion, the putting down of somebody um, for no reason, a positive reason, but maybe to make yourself feel more superior. Um, that's what we need to to get over and get beyond if we're going to get to a place of empathy, because, you know, it's, it's like a brick wall. You cannot see beyond it. You can't get beyond it. Um, I also describe judgment as a frenemy. 
Um, because you do need to be judgment. You need to make a judgment, but you can't be judgmental. And it's, so it's got that sort of duality to it. Um, and you do use your judgment. You, you are judgmental to protect yourself. I mean, you're, you're looking to, to keep yourself feeling kind of safe by something that's threatening you, or you just need to feel better about yourself. And so, gee, let me go make fun of the other person. Um, and it's actually what, I mean, what I went through was, you know, all the students being judgmental of me. And as I write about in the book, it, it took me a long time to realize it. But I finally got to the place where I recognized that this was never about me and why they were doing what they were doing. It was all about the pain they were going through, their childhoods that were um, challenging for them. And I, I liken it to us being wounded animals. We just kept bumping into each other. Um, you know, it doesn't make their behavior right, but I was at least able to get to a place of empathy. I was able to get my judgment down because I had been hurt so much. I had a lot of judgment towards Indiana. Um, and I was able to get it down to a place where then I could see and listen to them. We were at a, a high school reunion and I was able to listen to, to what they had gone through and they were at a place where they could open up and share as well um, and share what they had been going through. So, so Rob, I wonder if you could give us a, just a quick overview of the steps. And I know it's not a, like a really easy, just do these five easy steps and you'll have empathy <laughs> in 10 minutes, but like just for our listeners and even for, for us, like, uh, yeah, just the, the overview, what are the five steps? Absolutely. Um, yeah, they, they seems simple, but they're not easy, I think is the way somebody described yeah. them once. And they're not linear necessarily. They, they're laid out in a somewhat linear fashion. Obviously, in the book, they're linear, um, as you would read through it. But everybody comes into it with different uh, challenges and obstacles with each of the steps. And sometimes you can get through the first or the second and then something else comes up and you got to go back. And, and so, yeah, you need to think about these are the things you need to have in mind. And so the first step, as we've been talking about, is dismantling judgment. Um, I find that that's the, the first, the hardest step um, tends to be people that are from other research that we've done, people that are more educated um, and also older have harder times putting their judgment aside, um, I think, because of the way education forms and crystallizes and then it's like, Oh, you're supposed to be right. Um, so dismantling judgment. And again, it's about being judgmental and all the different ways that that shows up. And it comes from your past lived experience, your stereotypes, all the different types of biases, uh, that you carry with you. And it's, it's a brick wall. It's noise canceling headphones. It's all the things that get in your way. So that's the, the first step. The second step is asking good questions, which is trying to craft questions that aren't leading. Think of a courtroom drama where they say objection leading the witness. Um, you don't want to be leading somebody to affirm your worldview. You want to be very open to understanding whatever they're going to tell you. So you're asking exploratory open questions. And I always challenge people and I would challenge you guys. Um, and you can come back in a future episode and, and, 
send me a message if you've got this or not. Take the word why out of your vocabulary. Why is ultimately the thing we always want to try to understand. But when we're asked why, it challenges us. It puts us on the defensive. And so as a result, we're not going to be as open in our responses because we're feeling challenged. You know, and it starts when we're little kids. If you know, you think about why did you draw on the wall? Why did you cut your sister's hair? <laughs> why were you late for school? Why is that report not done? Why have you done this? Why, 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 why? And it, it again, it, it gets our, our ire up. It makes us defensive. Um, and so we're not open. So try to rephrase your questions using other words. Uh, you know, start with who, how, what, where, when. And form the questions around that. It's hard to do. It takes some time, but just start to be mindful of that. Another great one is how you do a follow-up. If somebody tells you, you know, about a situation and, and the title of the book, tell me more about that, is the ultimate be-all, end-all probe of all times. You just say to somebody, tell me more about that. When they've expressed a situation or an issue where you can finish it, add on to it, tell me more about that Pixar movie that you love so much that I hate. <laughs> Tell me more. Um, and it's, it's just, it's non-threatening. It's non-judgmental and it lets the, the person answering you take it in any number of directions. But then the third step is you've got to actively listen. And that's about being present and really paying attention, but it's also about looking at the nonverbal cues, reading the body language, um, paying attention to the environment, what else you might notice. So as we're on a Zoom call while we're recording this, I'm able to see some artwork in the background. Um, Chris, I think I saw a family photo at one point. And so it's like, hmm, okay, Chris seems to have a family. I could ask him questions about that. And we might have a really interesting conversation. And that's because I'm actively listening. I'm paying attention to the things that are around you, as well as listening to the words that you're saying. And I'm also, and I write about in the book, I'm using my intuition. I'm trusting my gut um, for things that I'm thinking you might be trying to say, but maybe you haven't actively said, therefore... I'm going to, I'm sensing it and I'm going to ask about it. Step four is integrating. Can I, to, can I interrupt oh, yeah. just real quick? Absolutely. Um, one thing that stood out to me in the, the active listening section was there is the, a question. Um, it was a little, once I had read the section and heard, and you did a great, just a little overview there. The question was on a scale of one to five, how present are you in a typical conversation? And I was, yes. I reflected on that and, I'm sure I've had recent conversations where I was very uh, not present and not You're, a good active listener. So it was, it was a little convicting for me. So I just thought I'd share that. And maybe uh, Chris and Graham, quick, like on a scale of one to five, how present are you in a typical conversation? Sorry, what, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> no. one, one being low, five being high on a scale of one to five. <laughs> How, and I know you put a joke in there. Um, yeah, <laughs> like how present are you? No, no, no. It's all good. I like that you did it. Um, I would say professional. Sometimes it, it depends. Like professionally, a conversation might have a different rating for me than personally. Even personally, who I'm talking to. Like, And I'm not defending myself. I'm saying that's just how it is sometimes in conversations that I might not give my best to certain people. But in the moment, I catch myself more lately, like I'd say in the last few years, um, 
kind of going, you know, I'm in this conversation. The least I could do is be present um, for the person who I'm talking with. Yeah. I'm trying to get the number up, but it's not always a five. That's for sure. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's hard. All of these steps take work. Each one of these steps takes, takes work and takes effort. I had a, I was on a call uh, earlier today with a client and right before that call, I got an email from somebody else that kind of threw me off and I was grumble, grumble, grumble. And Unfortunately, I had a colleague who was driving the conversation with the client, but and it might have been because of that that I wasn't as present. But I found like I'm like, what did they just say? Because I've been thinking about this other thing, this other email that came in, and I wasn't really paying attention. Um, so I'm just going to nod and try to look pretty, and <laughs> you know, jump back into it. So you're um, not a you're not a five every time. Oh God, no, definitely not, <laughs> definitely not. There's. And, I, and I'm really honest in the book. I mean, I'm not perfect. Yeah. I think I start the book out by saying that because I don't want people to hold me up as some empathy god. You know that I I have a great understanding of it. I try to be empathetic, but man, I've got judgment. I don't always ask good questions. I don't, as I just said, I don't always actively listen. You know, and then I get into step four, which is integrating into understanding. Um, and that is about one of the other misconceptions about empathy is, and I think what makes people uncomfortable with it is they feel like just because I see your point of view, that means I have to give up my own point of view or my own value or belief. And that's not what empathy is about. It's just about making room in your head that, you know, I like chocolate ice cream. You may like vanilla. And that leads me to a question I wanted to hear from the three of you. What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Well, I, I'll go first because I always get kind of ridiculed when I answer <laughs> or when I share this with anyone. But I, vanilla is my favorite flavor of ice cream. I, I don't, I like other flavors, but there's just something perfect and non messy about vanilla. A tell, good quality vanilla ice cream can't be topped. Tell me, tell me more. What is, what is it about vanilla? Tell me more about the flavor. It's just, uh, it's just simple. The texture's consistent. Uh, there's no crunchy bits. There's no <laughs> wavering. There's no substitution. Uh, <laughs> there's no, I don't know. It's hard to explain. You know, it's just the simplicity of it. I think it goes with so many things as well. It's multi-use. Um, it looks the nicest. How would I know? How would I know if I've had a bad vanilla ice cream? That's the thing about vanilla ice cream is, is it's really easy to know. You're not missing anything. You're, you don't look at your friends like, oh, am I supposed to like this? You know if it's bad vanilla ice cream. If you're eating some weird pistachio flavor, take a bite. Do you really? It's like wine. You don't really know if it's good. You just pretend. <laughs> but vanilla, you know. And so who makes the best vanilla ice cream? Oh, man. There's an ice cream shop up the street here in Red Deer uh, that I think is amazing. Um I don't know if they make it. Do you know, Chris, if they make yeah, this they, stuff locally? Apparently they make it themselves. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Chris, how about you? Favorite flavor of ice cream? It's peanut butter chocolate. And I feel like there's a right and wrong answer to this. And this is the right <laughs> answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to come back to that in a second. Tyler, what's your favorite <laughs> flavor of ice cream? Uh, butter pecan. And what is it about butter pecan that you like? Well, it's not all the things that Graham said. It's not <laughs> really simple. It's not. Um, it includes a crunchy bit. Um, it um, is complex. Yeah, 
I like those things. I like the nuttiness with the sweetness. Okay. And Chris, mm-hmm. peanut butter, chocolate, ice cream. Tell me more about that. I, like peanut butter, I like. Chocolate is okay. But when you put them together, this is like uh, Covey's, one of his seven habits. It's synergy. You put peanut butter and chocolate together and something magic happens, I think. It's the salty and the sweet. It's the chunks of peanut butter and the smoothness of the ice cream. What a pairing. So each one of you has a different favorite flavor of ice cream. Have you ever had ice cream together in a warmer month? Or I don't think so, guys. Have we? No, Not that I remember. So, yeah, I mean, when you're having ice cream with somebody, which is, is a, a often a shared experience, like you go with friends, but you each have your own individual ice cream. And you're, you know, you have your, your preference and that's okay. And you can still have your preference. You might taste the peanut butter chocolate if Chris were, you know, generous and, and sharing or if be. Tyler was sharing the <laughs> peanut butter pecan um, or Graham, if you were going to share the vanilla. But, and you can then kind of understand, oh, I, I get where you're, you're coming from. It doesn't mean that you don't get to finish your favorite flavor of ice cream. You do. You get to still have that. But you're now hopefully understanding somebody else's point of view and when, mm-hmm. what it is that they like about it. And that's the integrating into understanding. It's like you guys know each other really well, your friends, your colleagues, and you each have different ways of, of looking at things. You have different flavors of ice cream that you like. And that's okay. It's part of what makes you unique and different, distinct individuals. Um, and that's what integrating into understanding is about. It's like making sense of, hey, we're, we're not the same, and that's really a good thing. And then finally, it's using the solution imagination. So it's trying to step into Tyler's shoes and understanding like, okay, butter pecan, yeah, it's got the, the crunchy textural thing. It's a little more complex in his mind than vanilla ice cream, but it's not all the way to Chris's like flavor packed <laughs> peanut butter and chocolate, which is just like a dance sensation in your mouth. Um, <laughs> but can you understand where he would appreciate it? Or can you, you get to a place of appreciating where Graham is with this, the beautiful simplicity of a vanilla ice cream? And so that's where step five starts to come into play. And and where that's important is if you're thinking about, you know, let's say I work at an ice cream company and I'm going to make a new favorite flavor or a new fa- flavor of vanilla. Can you make a new flavor of vanilla? I'm going to make a new vanilla ice cream. What are the things that I need to have in it? I'm not a, the biggest vanilla fan. But I need to understand where Graham's coming from and what it is that he loves about it to make sure that this flavor delivers on that or that I'm bringing it to life in an advertising campaign that just like, oh, wow, I get that like ribbony smoothness and that those floral notes of the vanilla, that sort of sensorial thing that can make to a vanilla lover who will make it seem as exciting as peanut butter and chocolate ice cream (laughs) is to Chris and those of us that love peanut butter and chocolate ice cream. Um, But you have to use empathy. You have to be able to step into the shoes of somebody else to imagine what that's like. You use empathy then to persuade, to communicate, to collaborate. There's all these things that empathy goes into and you've got to go through all five of those steps. And often it's happening in like, you know, lightning fast speed um, when you're interacting with somebody to try to, to get there. 
so yeah, that's that that in an ice cream cup or an ice cream cone <laughs> are the five steps. I'm just you talked about um kind of that moment in the airport where you realized or heard the story about empathy being on the decline. Is there parts of those steps that would contribute to that? Like is active listening getting worse? Are people less likely to try to uh, see eye to eye? Is there is there a piece of that or is it just kind of the whole thing? You know, well, my ego, my pride was saying, oh, it's all dismantling judgment. That's the thing that's getting in our way. And so we set out uh, in January, we did some quantitative work with American adults to try to find out, like, of the five steps, what are the ones that people had the most difficulty with? Mm-hmm. And um, I am still months later trying to sort through and figure out exactly what the the answer is and the patterns that are leading up to it. But um, as, as many people, if you look like kind of broadly, as many people found the first step, dismantling judgment, the hardest step, as we're finding it the easiest step. Um, to get, you know, and you're just like, what, wait, how's that, how's that work? Similarly, a lot of people were having challenges with asking good questions and knowing the question to ask. Um, others were having trouble active listening. Um, and, and I, I you know, I, I get, I suppose this supports the stereotype, but men actually did report having more difficulty with active listening and to being present in conversations than women did. Um, and then judgment was something that increased and solidified the older people got. Um, and also the more right leaning politically people were, and also the, um, you know, <clears throat> less pigment you might have in your skin. Um, you tended to be a bit more judgmental. Um, surprise, surprise. Um, so yeah, really interesting stuff. And then um, women, it's really fascinating. We were we asked questions about like who is it important for you to have empathy with, and who is it important for you to receive empathy from. And you know, we get a range of people from you know close friends, romantic partner, spouse, children, in laws, neighbors, colleagues, your boss. Uh, service employees, travel, hospitality workers. And um, women, everybody said, you know, the, the people that you would typically have like emotional empathy. And when I talk about emotional empathy, the analogy I use these days, it's like, those are the people that would have been living in the cave with you back in prehistoric times. Um, they're the, the, the family members, the really super close friends that you just know them so well. You've got the same rituals and beliefs and value systems that you're able to get into that emotional space. And then cognitive empathy, the perspective taking, that's what you use with the people that live in the cave down the road. And they come over and they're trying to figure out like, hey, we've got all these wild animals coming through. How are we going to you know, divide that up? And, and you know, who's going to hunt where or do what? How are we going to get along? That's when you're using cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy is then what we use through so much of our day-to-day life and our, our existence. Well, the emotional empathy people, um, the ones that we would expect to have emotional empathy with our, our loved ones, our children, our close friends, 
women were seeking empathy from them significantly more than men were. Men were actually um, interested as well in getting empathy from that kind of what I would call the second ring of people. So your neighbors, the acquaintances, your colleagues at work, your boss, they had more desire to have empathy from them than women did, where women were definitely more placing more importance on the closer and the close friends in particular, um, the romantic partner spouse, the children uh, totally outperformed. Men were not as needing of empathy from their kids than, than moms were. Um, so it, it just, you know, as you look at it and maybe applies some like, well, what's, what's behind that? What's the sort of, uh, stereotypes that might be feeding into that or supporting that? And you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, things like that. And, um, you know, it is that I, I think of it as that nurturing, um, mother maternal role that is, you know, typically applied to a man's sort of outwardly hunter-gatherer, I'm worried about what the neighbors think. I'm worried because I've got to go out there and do that. And, it, you know, it's not something that we're consciously doing. I think this is stuff that's been hardwired since we were living in caves. Um, and it's just kind of part of our, our makeup. And, you know, again, you can't apply it to every single unique individual. I don't want people to go, wait, I'm not that way. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, there are men that are feeling one way and women the other, but that's what the the data was starting to show us. It also showed the other thing that's just like depressing. Um, We we asked, we asked a really bad research question. Um, We we asked people how, if they could agree with the statement, I can easily see the point of view of others. Now, if I asked you that each of you, that question, how would you answer that? Like, what would, would it, kind of indicate maybe i should say yes because it might be weird yeah. to say no i can easily see the point of view of others yeah i think i like to think so and i would answer yes to that yeah, yeah. probably not yeah true. i feel like i i don't think that's an easy skill i i want to to be able to do that better and i try but i don't always get to deep motivations or past trauma or yeah whatever could be buried under there So 31% of American adults, and we had a sample size of about a thousand. So it was pretty hefty, 18 plus, um, 31% were unable to agree with that statement. They either were neutral or they disagreed with it completely. Um, Hmm. and I was like, okay, that means like one third of the people you're running into every day are unable to easily see your point of view. So then it's like, okay, well, what do you need to do to help people see your point of view? Because empathy is a two-way street. And we're talking a lot about giving empathy, having empathy with others. But then it's like, well, what can you do as well to help people see where you're coming from? Lately, Rob, in the news and in some things that have happened in Canada, but all over the place due to things like COVID and freedom rallies and all those kinds of things, Sometimes it's easy to see what a person's point of view is, but I might have less empathy, even though I clearly know what they're saying. Maybe I don't know where they're coming from or why they have that point of view, um, but I can I can see what they're saying quite easily, anyway. And that's and that's and that's exactly it. You you're seeing the what, but you're not 
able to, because they're not communicating the why. Mm -hmm. And so you're not getting at that deeper understanding, which is what we end up connecting with empathetically. Um, Because if you just hear one of the chapters in the book, I write about my experiences doing some research on um, carrying concealed weapons in the United States. And I, I live in San Francisco. I'm a gay man. You can probably guess where my political leanings are and how I might feel about gun, gun safety and gun control. But I got to go to the NRA gun show in St. Louis back in, in 2012, which was an amazing experience. <laughs> and one of the things that I found as I was talking to people, so we were trying to understand for a client uh, that was making um, – uh, accessories that would be used in a carry conceal situation um, here in the United States. And I would ask people like, what prompted you to get the carry conceal permit and what was going on? And I repeatedly heard stories of um, I'm afraid of what might happen. It's a scary world out there effectively. And that just kept getting repeated over and over and over again. Whether they had actually experienced something, there were some people who were like, yeah, I've been mugged. That is real fear. To others, they're like, I don't know, something might happen. I, I want to be able to protect myself, my wife, you know, my family when we go out to dinner. Fair enough. And I came back to San Francisco, and we were having brunch with uh, some another gay couple, friends of ours, even further left-leaning than, than we are. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just met all these gun owners and here's the things that I heard. And they like really know what they're doing. They go through all this training in order to get the carry conceal permits. And my friends were like, yeah, I'm not, in, I'm, I'm afraid of those people. I'm afraid of what they might do because they've got guns. And, and it just dawned on me. I was like, oh, this is all just about fear. So you can hear somebody making arguments about the second amendment in the United States constitution. You can hear somebody making the arguments about those different things, but if you don't get under the surface and understand why and what's motivating it, you can't come together and have a productive conversation to figure out how might we actually, like we're not going to put the genie back in the bottle, you know, it's the United States guns are are here to stay, but what might we do together to make all of us feel safer, you know, help the people that are against guns, understand the types of training that's going through, show that demonstrate that maybe put some more safety checks in place, Um, do more things that make the people that want to carry conceal feel safer as well. Like come at it, understanding each other's point of view, come at it from having empathy with each other. And you're going to have a whole different and much more productive conversation. Rob, you talked about um, asking questions, doing surveys, market research, and you clearly have a company that gets involved with empathy with people one-on-one or maybe with groups. I'm just wondering, like, what are the steps in between? How do you go from asking those questions to then giving advice or um, facilitating that? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. It's a great question. So there's our own kind of synthesizing of everything that we've heard. What does it all mean? Um, kind of combing through the data again. We're looking for uh, uh patterns, themes that are emerging. But then when we really think about how do we connect our clients to it, 
it does come back to the story. And very often it's trying to get it to this, what we call the story of one. So the idea behind that is if you take, um, you know, in the, um, I don't know how many millions of people have died from COVID-19 worldwide at this point. It's 5 million or 6, 5 million, I think, is the most recent number. So that's a lot of people. And where does that show up in your body when you hear that information? Like, and I don't know if, Chris, you can answer that. Is that like something your head's trying to wrap around? Can you yeah, feel probably. it in your heart? It's For yeah. me, it's in my heart because, and I think you're going to get, so I don't want to ruin your story, but it's happened quite personally to me uh, too. So it, it hits the heart as well. So because you have a connection to an individual, and I'm, I'm sorry you've had whatever the experiences have been with, with COVID. Yeah. Um, and, and so for others, though, that haven't, you can start to bring that the COVID experience to life by telling the story of an individual that represents the 5 million people. Um, so when I'm giving lectures and presentations on empathy, I talk about and I've used this with, you know, name the the kind of natural disaster. I started with the tsunami of 2004 um, and, you know, 250,000 people died. And you just can't wrap your head around that, um, you know. But if I tell you the one story about the pilot from British Airways who had arrived in Phuket um, the more, that night before and was up and getting a coffee and reading the paper and all of a sudden – the waves hit and he was swept away and woke up two miles down the beach clinging to a young Thai woman and they somehow like kind of saved themselves. And then he spent the next six years trying to recover because of all the gunk and crap that he had swallowed. He had all sorts of tropical infectious diseases that doctors had never seen. And, and that just takes you to a whole different place about what it was like to be in the tsunami. Um, similarly with then COVID, if you tell the story about the one person, there's, um, a story I had seen in the news. And so I, I tell the story of, uh, Rosemary Blackwell. She's a teacher in, I think it was Grand Prairie, Texas, 20 plus year, uh, tenure at the, the school, a mentor to other, uh, younger faculty members, beloved in the community, you know, started to teach the generations of students, um, coming through. And she ended up passing away from COVID six hours after her husband, Paul, who was the local football coach, passed away from COVID. Mm-hmm. And when you hear that, like that just gets you in the heart. Like you can't help but feel something about that. And it's the combination of the, the data, 5 million people have died, and then the story of the one person. That's what can compel action. That's what can create the conviction that people have a need in order to say, Hey, we need to do something differently. We've got to do something about this. So we're always thinking about how we can take the data, take the what and really give it some heart with the why, because that's where the empathy comes in. You can't have empathy with, you know, 5 million people, but you can have empathy with the one person. You know, that's why it's it's hard with the Holocaust to wrap your head around the fact that six million people died through the, the, the camps and everything. But then you hear the stories of the survivors or the families and the, the families that got separated and some lived and some didn't. 
that suddenly helps you understand, wow, this was a really bad thing. This was a really personal story. I can relate to it. Mm-hmm. There's something about it that I can relate to. And that's what empathy is all about. It's about relating and understanding somebody else so that you can then go and do whatever the thing is that you need to, to do that empathy can enable. Rob, um, you started off earlier talking about um, the 40% drop-off in empathy. Uh, are you hopeful? Are you, for the future, are you hopeful for people's desire? Because I think there's a desire for empathy, whether we know it or not. There, there um, absolutely is. And yes, I'm very hopeful. And, and some other data that we have at Ignite360, we started a, a study called Navigating to a New Normal. Because, you know, when I was on my last plane flight, March 10th, 2020, coming back from New York to San Francisco, you knew this was going to change everything. You thought it was only going to change it for three months, mm-hmm. but it was going to have deep lasting impact. And so it was like, we need to study this. We need to understand it. We need to start now rather than wait. So we started navigating to new normal, which is a combination of quantitative data, the what and how people are thinking and feeling. And then the qualitative, there's 16 American adults that we follow and they represent different ethnicities and ages and income and, and residential areas um, and we've been following them ever since for, for over two, um, coming up just now on two full years um, of conversation. And one of the things we found in the quant data, we started asking people like, okay, when this is over, are you going to go back to the way things were in 2019? Or do you want some change in your life? 72% of people were saying they wanted some form of change. Right now, that number is at about 63%. We just fielded that again in, in um January. And I think that's because they've been implementing a lot of change and they're kind of into this new sort of life. Um, And empathy is actually one of the things people are looking for. They're looking for more connection. Mm -hmm. They're looking for a stronger connection with a smaller group of people. It's not about me and my 200 closest friends going to Ibiza for a party. It's (laughs) not me doing that with like four of us or six of us. It's, It's a much more quality connection. And it's also about um, building empathy. So of those 72%, 65% said that they wanted uh, to better understand the points of view of others. That was a skill they wanted to improve. So yes, I have great hope mm-hmm. that, and there is interest in it. And you know, when you look at the great resignation that's been going on, where millions upon millions of people are leaving their jobs uh, every month, One of the reasons why they're doing it is they don't feel like they've been supported by their managers or their bosses or their organization is insufficient in their empathetic skills. Um, And so that gives me great hope that there is definitely interest in understanding how we can get along and how we can make a better society together. It's pretty encouraging to hear you talk like that because you're the one doing the research and you know a lot about that and just kind of, I don't know for your own journey, but it seems maybe the the opportunity that comes with a, a little bit of a feeling of hopelessness or the challenge that comes when when you hear numbers like forty percent decline in empathy, but then to see, hey, here's where um, something I learned as a kid uh, fits in, and here's something I have to serve and offer um, to help people gain uh, the skills they need to be better listeners and more empathetic, and so. Uh, we're just really thankful that you came to share those things that you've learned with us because it's certainly something that we want to do. Um, and, 
and to be about, you know, not just to do, but to be about when we're having conversations and when we're uh, talking to people um, to include these skills and to increase our capacity. Yeah. And to be that way. And we do it one conversation at a time. Yeah. Don't, you know, mountains weren't formed overnight. They weren't formed, you know, they don't erode into a hill overnight. It takes a long time and, and bringing about change like this is very similar, but we all have a role that we can play if we choose to be courageous enough to do it. Um, and we just need to do it one conversation at a time. We're going to just um, switch to another, our final segment of the podcast, which is confessions. Rob, we'd love if you stuck around for that. Um, and, but no pressure. Um, that is one way we build uh, empathy maybe is being vulnerable with each other. So yeah, uh, that's something that we're going to do next, but thanks so much for your insight and your wisdom and your experience and for sharing your time with us. So in this uh, in this segment, we uh, we bear our souls, and sometimes we we confess to to things that happened a long time ago, and sometimes we just share I don't know things that happened even in this conversation or in the last last few moments. But mine is uh, a familiar story that's been on our podcast many times. It has to do with um, waking up in the morning. I've had a few of those and it's, I, I made a commitment at one point to buy an alarm clock, um, so that I wouldn't be on my phone as much just before bed. And on the podcast I did, like I did share that I had bought an alarm clock. I remember um, that. That was a big moment. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I had done it. I had put the phone far away from myself and I was using this retro alarm clock for about two days. <laughs> oh No. Tyler, um, no. And it just became, there was like one time I, I feel like it didn't work or something. And then I just didn't have patience for that. I, I, I switched back to the phone and my wife just last night said, you have to confess like that you have not followed through. Because Graham has, has, I don't know, taken some heat for not following through on things he said he would do. Yes. Um, so. Yes. I, I I deserve that as well. Well, I, I do wonder if when you were actually recommending using alarm clock, if you had already given up on it. <laughs> yeah, we'd have to go back and check the timeline, but it, <laughs> check it, the timeline. It was pretty shortly after you got it. Tyler, yeah. would you recommit here and now to try again? Yeah, it part partially it was just like I had good intentions, I guess, to to just go get another alarm clock. The the two dollar alarm clock I had bought at the thrift store was maybe not the one to go with. Um, maybe this time I'll, <laughs> I'll invest and get one that's reliable. Well, thanks, Tyler. Uh, I'll make mine quick. I some students listen to this podcast, and so this is for you guys. Um, I had a student ask me briefly. I was doing a lesson. They were trying to distract me, but they asked me if I ever stole anything. Uh, students always love to get the teachers to talk about stuff like that. Did you steal? Have you ever stolen anything? And I said look at me, do you think I would steal something? Of course not. And I moved on with the lesson. But my confession is that was not true. Uh, I didn't feel like telling the student. But I have definitely stolen something in my life. Uh, I was in grade four, Terrace, BC, Zeller's, Kinder Egg, put it in my pocket, took it home, ate it in the backyard behind the shed, 
It was delicious. Uh, there you go. I tried it again a week later, and they caught me. Oh. Uh, the lady at the store grabbed me by the shoulders as I walked out and sat me down, and the manager came and, and yelled at me and said, how would you like it if I stole your bike? And I said, <laughs> I wouldn't like that very much at all. And then I gave the egg back, and that's my story and about stealing. you were stealing. cured from stealing? And I was cured. So students, yes, I did steal uh, a Kinder Egg. And you tried to steal a second. And I failed miserably. I was I had so much confidence after the first one went so smoothly, but a life of crime was not uh, not mine. Okay, I'm going to, um, Tyler, you mentioned that sometimes the things we admit to or talk about are from the past. This is the case that it happened when I was a kid, but it has long-lasting ramifications oh. that still last today. And the confession is that I hate mint chocolate chip ice cream. And if you just heard that, you might not have any empathy for my situation. But if you listen to my story, you might realize why. So when my parents were on a church (laughs) softball team, they were playing another church. I'm going to guess it was the Anglicans because this kid came up behind me, a kid from the other team. And we were on a very high part of the playground while our parents were playing. We were on the playground. And there was this old, they don't have this at playgrounds anymore. It was like a zip line. You held on to this handle and you ripped down this metal line to a lower platform. So it was maybe two or three stories in height off the sand. And this kid came up behind me and said, next time we're up here, I'm going to push you off. And sure enough, next time we were up there, he just two hands in my back and I kind of tumbled down and landed awkwardly with kind of my foot under my butt and really hurt both my leg and um, my backside. And then this kid got walloped by his parents and locked in the car for the rest of the day. But I was then taken as kind of like on the way home, let's take, let's take Christopher for mint chocolate chip ice cream. And so in my mind, I have this connection of this ice cream, which I probably did like at the time with this memory of getting hurt and kind of not bullied, but you know, pushed off of a playground equipment by this kid. So that's why I don't like mint chocolate chip ice cream. You have an aversion yeah, it's an aversion to it. Yeah. Um, wow. Now, it's interesting because today, if that would have happened, do you think the kid's parents would have walloped him or would they have gone to you and yeah. said, What'd you do? Yeah. Why did, yeah, exactly. Why did you, you must do have that? said something. Yeah. They probably would have, right? So, Rob, we're going to finish with, with your confession, if you don't mind. Uh, because it's so uplifting. <laughs> 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 sure um yeah i'm a big cat lover i always have been and uh growing up in indiana we had um i was just learned to drive i was 16 years old i was driving the family home from our saturday trip to the mall it was a dark and stormy night literally <laughs> and we're driving along like maybe two miles from home because that's where accidents always happen is in that close radius and all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I'm behind the wheel, it's raining, you know, wipers gallon. Out of the corner of my eye, I see this like flash. I was like, oh, what's that? And I try to hit the brakes, but the, the, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I think that was a cat. I think that was a cat. I just killed a cat. Oh my God. Oh my God. And I'm like trying to hold it together. And my, <laughs> my parents are like, what my parents 
it's going to possibly set. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm sure it's fine, son. Walk <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it off, exactly. Um, but I, and then I got home. We got, so it was home like five minutes later or so. Walked in the door, and there is Garf, our cat. The 80s was an orange tiger stripe named Garfield, and of course. Um, and I just like burst into tears and was unconsolable. And then that was on Saturday on Monday on the bus on the way to school. That's the route that we oh, drive. Wow. Oh, yeah. And there it was. The, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I killed a cat. Yeah. So why did we end with that one? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Just the order. It was random. That's our show. <laughs> and that's our show. Thanks for joining. I'm Rob Volpe. My book is called Tell Me More About That. <laughs> but yes, Rob, you should share. Yes, you have your book. Yes. Um, uh, anything else you want our listeners to know about? Oh, so much. Um, yeah. So my book is called Tell Me More About That, Solving the Empathy Crisis, One Conversation at a Time. It's available on in hardcover and an ebook wherever you buy books, um, whether that's in Indigo in Canada or Amazon or independent booksellers. Um, we have a recording or just finished recording the audiobook that will be out in May if people are predisposed nice. to listening to audio. I narrate it. Um, and so it's me telling my stories. Um, and then you can go to five steps to empathy.com to learn more about me, the book, speaking engagements, opportunities to connect. Uh, and it's number five steps to empathy.com. And otherwise I encourage people to just find me on social media. I'm sure you'll put that in the, the posts, mm-hmm. but, yep. uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Peloton, give me a high five. If you're a Peloton what? writer, if you see me on there. Oh yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. A new, a new social network that I should be getting it, on. Peloton builds, it creates community. And when yeah. you're on a ride with somebody else, like, and they can be complete strangers, but you're like high fiving each other. And they, it, it, it helps. I like, it gives me a little bit of a, a positive. To That's really cool. Yeah. Keep going and churning it out. So yeah, and I'm empathy activist on Peloton. So uh, Ooh, awesome. easy to find me there and Instagram and other places. Well, maybe our our podcast should get on the uh, Peloton. We should do a harmonious gentleman on uh, Peloton and Strava yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> sure. But but we're not the reason currently. I'm off Strava is because Tyler's so good at running it. Just depressed me, so I got off of it. I didn't help me at all. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Chris, if people want to connect maybe through uh, via our stuff, how do they get hold of us? Yeah, we love, we're on not all of those social media platforms, but some of them, Twitter and Instagram at harmonious gents. And you can email us. We love, uh, reading and, uh, on air, on the show too, uh, responding to your emails at harmonious gentlemen at gmail.com. And we have a really great website that Tyler made. Uh, you can find that at harmonious gentlemen.com. One final thank you to Rob. Thank you, Rob. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, guys. This has been so wonderful. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I think you've made us better at what we're trying to do. Right? Like, yeah, we really appreciate it. And, but before, like, one last question, and we need to keep it, keep it short. But, um, we, we told you our favorite types of ice cream, but we never asked you. Um, can you, can you tell us, 
what the correct answer to that question was? (laughs) (laughs) The correct answer to my favorite flavor of ice cream. Um, I am anything in the chocolate family, like a chocolate brownie fudge is really good. There's a local uh, San Francisco place called Mitchell's ice cream that does a killer Mexican chocolate that has like some cinnamon and a little bit of heat to it. That, that can be really good. And um, Chris, they have a really good chocolate peanut butter that makes a really damn good milkshake. Um, oh so boy! If that I can get awesome. you down to San Francisco, we'll yeah. we'll do that. Um, and in the meantime, I plugged in um, my journey, my route to get up to Cilantro and Chive for a harmonious oh. gentleman burger. Yeah. If I leave now, I'll get there in 18 days and seven hours walking. That's awesome. That's not we'll even that long. No, it's worth it. Oh my. It's worth it. Well, to, the to, burger's I'm, worth it. I'm sure the burger is worth it, and I'll burn off the calories while I'm doing it. So <laughs> I look forward to uh, seeing you guys in person at some point. Yeah, that would be, be great. Be so good, Rob. Okay, well, thanks again, Rob. And for listeners, uh, you know, just have a good day, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> We never know how to end the show. Tyler, say goodbye. Have a harmonious day. Oh, yeah. Have Have a a harmonious day. See, Rob's just making us better. Nice.